Welcome back to this correspondence edition of Off the Record with Jim Kurtzner, Emily Lawler, David Boucher, and Bill Ballinger. Our lead story, the passing of U.S. Senator Carl Levin, and the governor says no to mandatory vaccinations for state employees. Sit in with us as we get the inside out Off the Record. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. And now, this edition of Off the Record with Tim Skubik. Welcome back to Off the Record. The end of July as uh, we move into uh, what was a very busy news week in our town. But uh, first of all, let's say good morning to our panel, Emily and James and David and Bill. Nice to have all of you on board. Uh, we start the broadcast this morning uh, on rather a sad note with the passing of Carl Levin last night. Uh, and uh, we, we did an exit interview with him in 2014. And we found out two things about this senator that we didn't know. Number one, he started out he wanted to be a basketball player. <clears throat> until the coach told him he couldn't do that. And that his mother wanted him to be a piano player, and he told her he couldn't do that. Here's the exchange with Mr. Levin. What's your legacy? You know, I still, believe it or not, I'm looking forward to getting my defense bill passed. That's my, my, next, uh, my next job, and so I'll, there'll be plenty of time, I hope, to be in good health that I can look back. But I'm not, I'm not starting yet. The show, I know, is uh, kind of, it, it's tempting to look back, particularly sitting with you, because you and I go back so far to look backwards, but I'm going to resist temptation. Do you wish you had practiced the piano more? <laughs> <laughs> no, the world's a lot better off because I didn't practice the piano. No, I, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I wish I did play the piano. My wife is a terrific piano player, and I listen to her playing Chopin and Brahms uh, almost every day. Senator, it's been an honor to cover you, sir. Thank you, Tim. So, Bill, what do you make of the passing of this, uh, this legend? Well, he was the all-time record holder U.S. Senator from Michigan. Six, six-year term, 36 years. And remember, he started out back in 1978 uh, having uh, succeeded his brother, Sander, who had run uh, twice for governor and lost, and his uh, cousin uh, Charles was on the Supreme Court, and Carl was kind of like an afterthought, I think, to a lot of people in Michigan. He was the president of the Detroit City Council, and I don't think anybody expected him, uh, first of all, to upset an incumbent U.S. Senator, Bob Griffin, and then when he did, uh, to last as long as he did. And he had an incredible career, and I maintain, listening to all the Democratic politician orators over the last half century. He was the best Democratic speaker, I believe. If you heard him at state conventions, you don't think of Carl Levin that way. He was the best speaker they had in the state. Jim, Jim, he was fun to cover, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, I go back to 1983 when I started in Michigan up in Flint, and I remember he spent a lot of time in Flint because of the auto industry, the UAW, uh, the 80s, of course, uh, he uh, battled Reaganomics in Congress and in the Senate. But I think he was also aligned with Ronald Reagan with a strong military. I think that's part of the legacy. You asked him what his legacy is that. And um, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing him last year. Uh, a lot of people may not remember this, but he was one of two negotiators who brokered the Flint water crisis yeah. 
$600 million settlement, and yeah. he was in the middle of that. Emily, uh, it, 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 a lot of people go to the U.S. Senate, and all of a sudden, they become unapproachable. Uh, you could never say that about Carl Levin, right? <laughs> no, you sort of hit the nail on the head with that. He really, I think, in some ways, was defined by the relationships he had with people Um he was well respected in so many circles and, you know, sort of came to be, I think, Michigan's most recognizable politician for a long time. He had those signature uh, glasses perched on the end of his nose. Um, but, you know, he, he was willing to have a conversation with with anyone and really, I think, leaves a, a good political legacy and frankly, a political dynasty here in Michigan. David, as you know, in politics, when you ask a politician about their legacy, they can go on for days and days. And that answer, he didn't even want to go there. That, that was vintage Carl Levin, wasn't it? Yeah, to, to your point, uh, that's generally indicative of somebody who could list any number of things to be part of their legacy. Uh, and, and I think, you know, uh, for people who aren't insiders or somebody who might have just seen them, I, I thought this was a funny statement that his, his nephew, Andy Levin, put out. He mentioned in part that... Um, that he's known for having kind of like this a disheveled suit and just being, you know, like having a bunch of bulging papers under his arm while he's in Congress. And uh, one of my colleagues, Todd Spangler, had a funny anecdote about that when he was running for Congress again for his second uh, term in 84. He was running against an astronaut, Jack Lausma, who was a, who was described as a tall, handsome Republican. And Lausma tried to tried to point out these differences in their physical attributes. And Levin told The Washington Post that he leaned into his, quote, blump, uh, plump, balding and disheveled uh, look and that it worked for him. And so that was I think that people really liked the fact that he was a genuine person, yeah. uh, regardless of whether or not they were Republicans or that they were Democrats. Yeah, I just want to share one final story that I had with him. I, I found out, Jimmy, that uh, he was working on that settlement for the Flint water crisis. So it was tough to get through to him. But he returned my call and it turned out to be our last conversation together. And I loved his sense of humor. He said, Skubik, he says, you know, uh, he says, I hear you on the radio all the time. I don't listen to you, but I hear you. You you get the distinction. <laughs> and oh, it, 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 I mean, that was vintage car love and just a, a little a little thing, which was part of his charm uh, to Barbara and Sandy and the rest of the family. We send our warm regards and our prayers. Uh, we were going we're gonna to miss this guy. He was uh, incredible. All right, let's talk about something a little more mundane, but still important. Uh, Emily, the, the governor is checking in on the issue of mandatory shots for state employees. And while other states, California, New York, to name two, are going there, she is not. How come? Yeah, there's sort of a scattershot of municipalities and states across the nation that are pursuing this now. We've seen some action on the federal front as well um, with, with federal employees. And, um, you know, Whitmer has been really hesitant to go here, but I think that it's going to become more pressing. I mean, obviously she and other state leaders um, have relied on this sort of incentivizing of people to get the vaccine. Um, the vaccine lottery period, I believe, ended yesterday. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of incentivizing period, um, A, wasn't particularly effective, and B, is ending. And I think a lot of people are asking, what's next, and is it mandates? What is next, James? I think we haven't seen the end of this story yet. Uh, Michigan is still, if you look at that uh, U.S. map, we're still in the yellow, which means the Delta variant hasn't spread as quickly around here as it has in other states. If that shoots back up, I think that will force Whitmer's hand to do more. We saw President Biden say yesterday he wants the states to use the federal funds and pay people 100 bucks each 
to get the shot? Uh, will she adopt that? Does that need legislative approval? A lot of questions there. I don't think we've heard the end of this. And I think employers are struggling with this as well. My employer, the parent company of Channel 7 here in Detroit, uh, re reimposed a mask mandate for people working inside the station. We have to wear these if we go into buildings now doing our job out in the field. If we have to wear these working in the trucks with news photographers. Uh, we all were on a, uh, a sort of a structured return back to work. Uh, that's been put on pause. So I think this is still evolving. Let me put these numbers in perspective. The COVID in Michigan is about 3% of the cases. In nationwide, it's 80%. So you're absolutely right. But by the same token, Dr. Caldoun said this week that it was only a matter of time before Michigan caught up with all this. Uh, David, when the governor starts showing up with a mask on her face, uh, that sends a signal, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and I think, you know, if you were to talk to um, Republicans or, or critics, they would say, well, one day she wasn't wearing a mask and one day she wasn't. But I think all of us know that this is an evolving situation. It's a situation involving a, a virus that mutates, literally changes, and, and uh, the impact has a, has a different uh, has a difference on, on everybody as we move on. I do think it's really important to note, though, that in the spring, Michigan had by far, not even close, the largest outbreak of COVID in the nation, worst hotspot, and that the governor was repeatedly asked about whether or not the health department would issue more stringent mandates, and they did not. So while there's obviously a chance that the state could bring back a mask mandate uh, it, to respond to a Delta variant. I do think that it's it's perhaps looking back could foreshadow that the governor won't. She Her message really since January, since Robert Gordon left DHHS, has been focused more on personal responsibility, either encouraging people but not mandating to wear masks or encouraging people to get vaccines. Again, that could totally change, but the tone of the government has, uh, uh, the DHHS and the governor has really changed and has changed for months now. Uh, Bill, she has said that she doesn't anticipate that we're ever going to go back to the restrictions sort of thing. Isn't that kind of a dangerous thing to say? Because what if the science, quote, unquote, dictates that, uh, you know, things are turning south? It is dangerous to a certain extent, but uh, she can say if she has to go back to the old policy, look, you heard me say, I don't think we're going to have to go back to this. So, you know, it must be really serious if I'm asking you to go back to it. But I agree with Dave. I don't think she's going to go back. She's going to do everything she can to avoid the policy that she promulgated in the last nine months of 2020. I think she turned the page in January with the departure of Gordon. Uh, I think she's done everything she could uh, since then to walk that policy back without seeming to cave in. She talks uh, the big talk about, you know, we got to be safe and we got to do this and we got to take the vaccine. But I think those days are over with her and she wants to put this behind her completely. The dangerous part of the story from a political standpoint is that the longer that we go into this year and get closer to next year, decisions on the COVID become a little more dicier, don't they, Jimmy? Absolutely. I think uh, that's another factor weighing in her mind. Uh, she took a lot of heat, uh, especially from the business community, restaurants, bars, hospitality for the lockdowns that we went through last winter, months of lockdowns uh, while Ohio was still open. You know, I'm here in Detroit and I think I told you before, while we were locked down in Michigan, I drove down to Toledo to have dinner out. I never got COVID, knock on wood. So that's clearly in her mind that uh, she's playing that middle ground in next year's election, assuming she's running and she doesn't want to upset those people. 
you went to Toledo, shame on you. <laughs> of all places, do what did you got to do? Why, why don't you go to Fort Wayne or something? Uh, David, talk to me about campaign finance reports throughout this week. Boy, you know, one thing we know about our business, that raising money apparently is a, is a growth industry in our state, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's to, to no surprise, everybody has lots of money. Some people have more money than others. But especially, you know, if we look at the governor's race, Gretchen Whitmer announced a ton of money. There's a debate about whether or not she followed the letter of the law and, made, and, and or just completely ignored and blew past campaign finance limits for individuals. I, I think most voters don't care. Maybe they do. But I think at the end of the day, no one's going to be surprised when there's a just a ton of money that comes in either from a campaign or from outside spenders on this race, on the, on the governor's race. So clearly, Governor Whitmer is out to a, a, a huge financial edge in this race, Republicans are still going to spend a ton of money on whomever their candidate is. And yeah, at the state legislative level, again, everybody has, you know, a, a fair amount of money uh, to, to get ready for the next election cycle. Emily, what were you writing about on MLive on this campaign finance story? What, uh, what segment did you pick out? Certainly the um, jumbo contributions from Whitmer. That's the term I'm going with. I'm not sure if I've successfully coined it or not. Um, you can tell me, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, basically the normal um, contribution limit would be $7,150. That is sort of the letter of the law, but she's relying on these declaratory rulings from uh, before I was born um, to talk about um, how she can take um, bigger contributions than that because she's facing a, a active recall. Um, now, people have said, of course, that the recalls against her don't seem particularly um, poised for success. Certainly, some have already publicly folded. Um, and, you know, you'd need a huge amount of, of effort to get something like that off the ground. Um, but the other thing that I was looking at from the um, campaign finance report was, frankly, Garrett Saldano from uh, the Republican field was just a blow, blew everyone else out of the water. I think he got close to five or six times more money um, than the next closest person, almost $625,000. So that gave me a little bit of an indication that's such a varied field right now. Um, there's no legacy politician. Um, obviously, James Craig has formed this exploratory committee debate over whether um, that's a really a thing, but it, it's a candidate committee that's called an exploratory committee, um, and he, his fundraising reports weren't due yet because it was formed so recently. Um, but yeah, in terms of trying to separate out that field, I think uh, Garrett Saldana certainly separated himself uh, from the other candidates who are in the race so far with that fundraising report. Bill, what was your lead on it? It would be the uh, Gretchen Whitmer busting through the spending cap story. I mean, imagine if this stands, Tim, anybody could get out on a street corner and say, I'm starting a recall campaign against so-and-so. And if that person is an incumbent, uh, immediately they're off to the races, raising millions of dollars. My prediction is this is not going to stand. It's going to get thrown out by the courts. The Dick Austin declaratory ruling from nearly 40 years ago has never been challenged in court. It's patently unfair, obviously, for the governor or anybody else in office to take advantage of this. It was the law of unintended consequences, and I think it'll be done away with. All right, Jim, we're going to talk a second about the Genesee County Sheriff, uh, who's going to be maybe, maybe running for governor. Let's look at the setup piece, and we'll come back to you, all right? Roll up, guys. All right.
Genesee County Sheriff Chris Swanson made national headlines last May when, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, well, he pitched his riot gear and joined the Black Lives Matter demonstration. Then the sheriff also made statewide headlines when he refused to enforce Governor Whitmer's lockdown of the entire state. Now the 47-year-old with 27 years in the sheriff's department is making more political news by refusing to take himself out of a possible bid for governor. If he were to get in, it would be unprecedented for a candidate from the same party to challenge a sitting governor. Here's what the sheriff is telling Six News, quote, I get asked that question about running for governor every day. It's flattering. So is he running? Quote, I haven't made any decision. But by saying that, he implies that he does have a decision to make on the issue. Otherwise, he would have said, I'm not running. So has he ruled out a bid for governor? He said it would be fair to say that. With 10 million bucks in her re-election coffers, the incumbent governor, to say the least, would be tough to defeat in a Democratic primary. Six News pollster Bernie Porn has this take on a possible Swanson challenge to the governor. Why would he do such a thing when uh, uh, Governor Whitmer has a 90% favorability rating among Democrats? Would you say this potential candidacy is a fool's errand? Yes, I think so. If there was a Democratic challenger, the governor would have to spend money to win, leaving her fewer dollars for a campaign in the general election against the Republicans. And even worse for the governor, the state Republican Party chair and others would likely allege that the governor is so weak that even a fellow Democrat is thinking about taking her on. That is always a problem with uh, an incumbent governor if uh, they uh, have uh, opposition from their own party. Democrats will probably have some heart-to-heart -heart discussions with, uh, with the sheriff uh, and probably try to discourage him from doing so. He is playing right into the Republicans' hands by putting this out there. That is true. By not ruling out a possible bid for governor, Ms. Whitmer's supporters will be none too happy with the county sheriff in Genesee. So, Jimmy, when you first heard this story, you must have gone... What? Well, I, I knew it was out there. I've known Chris Swanson his entire law enforcement career. I spent 23 years in the news business up in Flint. Uh, and I called him earlier today, uh, told him I'm doing the Scooby show. We had a nice conversation and I want to I want to speak accurately. I just took a few notes from our conversation. Remember, this is a family I, program. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no four letter words. We're good. <laughs> OK, all right. I, I, I said, Scooby did that story on you. He says, oh, yeah. And I really generated the interest. I said, are you walking anything back? He says, no, I just want to clarify. I've made no decisions. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to run against Whitmer or not. I asked him, you're taking heat from the party for doing this, for putting this out there, aren't you? And he goes, I know. Uh, he said the bottom line, it's a long-term play for him. He wants to know, is Whitmer running or not? If she doesn't run, there's an opportunity there. But he still hasn't made any decisions. William, you're from Flint. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, she indicated the other day, talking about her future, she said, in my second term uh, and with a Democratic legislature, which I hope we have uh, once we get rid of gerrymandering from the Apportionment Commission. Uh, so I think she's uh, looking pretty strong as a candidate for re-election. So if his excuse is, I just want to make sure that she actually is running and I'll be in place if she isn't. I don't think that really sounds plausible. And I think it's a little dangerous for him uh, and his political future within his own party to uh, get this far out on a limb.
dangerous. Uh, some would say it's a kamikaze mission. <laughs> huh? You could say that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the guy's charming. I mean, he's got a future politically, I think, no question about it. But why he would do this, unless maybe he decides uh, the Jane Mansfield philosophy, all news is good news. Just spell my name right. David, what did you think? Democracy is better when other people get to run. I mean, there's politics involved, right? But like, it's if we're serving the best interest of the voters and best interest of the people, like options tend to be a good thing. In reality, of, of course, you know, the governor's already raised more money now than she did her entire last cycle, and she's an incumbent. So, of course, you know, the chances of anybody winning in a Democratic primary are uh, low, to say the least. She's going to have plenty of money to run against any Republican. You know, even if she spends a little bit, she's going to get a ton more from national Democrats. Uh, uh, but again, you know, there's nothing in theory, there's nothing wrong with a, somebody challenging you from within the party and making making you as a candidate have to defend your stances to your party faithful. That's pretty standard operating procedure. And, you know, if Democrats get mad about Democrats talking about Democratic politics, that's um, a strange stance to take. Emily, non-story. You know, I think that, like others have said, his political future is a story. Um, I profiled him as one of my people who uh, were huge newsmakers in 2020. He had um, the record. I think you actually showed some footage earlier of um, joining the protesters um, after the, the George Floyd um, uh, killing and um, really stopped Flint from, from being one of those stories on the national news. I, he uh, really read his community right and read that moment right, I think. And, you know, that kind of intuition is going to get you pretty far in the political world. Um, do I think that he uh, could go up against Whitmer with a $10 million war chest at this exact point in time? No. Do I think that it's probably right for us to be talking about him and his political future in some sense? Yes. So I'm glad we gave him the airtime. Bill, let's talk quickly about fair and equal now is hanging by a thread. The courts have to say that the 18,000 signatures they collected electronically should be counted. Uh, what, the, what went on with this story this week? Well, what went on was that the Board of State canvassers uh, looked at everything again and unanimously agreed, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, that this did not qualify for the uh, initiative petition to be sent to the legislature. And so, you know, the fair and equal people said, we're taking it to court. I mean, what else is new? This is the latest battle in court over a decision by the Board of State canvassers on how many issues can we point to over the last few years. And they came up with arguments that we've never heard before on electronic signatures, as you pointed out. So some court is going to have to uh, sort this out. My prediction is this thing is not going to be approved in the final analysis. It will not go to the legislature. And Republican majorities in the legislature will breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah, now we don't have to deal with this. David, the legal hook right. that they're putting this thing on is that the legislature has said during the pandemic that electronic signatures are good and kosher on legal documents, ergo, our petition signatures are a legal document. People did electronic. What you know, this is legal. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, to your point, um, pandemic has resulted in all sorts of different new challenges and um, interpretations of, of what we can and can't do in, in any facet of our lives. Uh, I do think, to, to Bill's point, you know, this this topic has has come before the legislature for years and has just not come up for a vote. So uh, I, obviously. 
you know, the whole intention of this petition drive is that the organizers are fairly confident that if it went before voters, that it would be overwhelmingly approved. And so this is another one of those topics that the general public gets frustrated with because this is very bureaucratic, very pedantic. And in theory, lawmakers could just take an up or down vote on this sort of issue or let it go to the voters. And instead, that there's a procedural battle over the veracity of electronic signatures, which, again, frustrates people. And the heart of this issue shouldn't be lost. This is a this is a fairness issue that, or, or to, to obviously to the supporters who, who believe in this. And it's bogged down, again, in procedural mumbo jumbo. Jim, what about Ms. Benson and the Auditor General appear to be at odds over whether we had a legal election or not in Michigan? She's sought out an attorney general's opinion about the reach of the Auditor General. She doesn't want them getting records from cities, townships, county clerks where the elections were held. Uh, she's wanting that blocked. She says that could be an overreach by the Auditor General. And I think this opens the door again to all of the Republicans and the Trump supporters, giving them another opportunity to say the election was fraudulent here in Michigan. And if we don't do this Auditor General report, it's a cover up. And so here we go again. And that's after the Ed McBroom report that came out in June, 55 pages. Uh, you know, the discussion and the debate about the election goes on. And this is the latest chapter. Emily, what's the status of the stuff uh, in the legislature on these uh, these proposals? They're eventually going to put their their stamp of approval on all those, quote, reforms, end quote. I do think that they're making some moves on that. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, part of the opposition to this attorney general um, issue is just that it's going to draw this issue out uh, for longer and longer. We've seen people take issue with this election since the day after or the night of, perhaps, and um, certainly don't want to be dealing with that two years from now. <laughs> um, and the Auditor General uh, report would certainly give it more leg. Well, group, thank you very much for being on. Emily was on our very first Zoom cast back in 1932. That seems like it was a long time ago. And uh, hopefully you're on the last one next week. Uh, we'll be back in the studio with Off the Record Live and Lively. Until then, I'm Tim Skubik. On behalf of the panel, everybody have a safe weekend, okay? Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. For more Off the Record, visit wkar.org. Michigan Public Television stations have contributed to the production costs of Off the Record with Tim Skubik.